standing just a moment, Luke 22. Verses 31 and 32, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, maybe that's why I had to say it twice. Simon wouldn't pay attention. Behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted. See, the Lord had no doubt that Peter was going to survive this encounter. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Look around the congregation today, just wave at one another. Remember, that's what we did during COVID, right? The old COVID wave. You may be seated. God bless you. <clears throat> Prayer yesterday morning uh, in a little bit of consternation concerning uh, the direction that I felt led to go in today. I began to pray about the service and what the Lord wanted us to preach uh, today. Uh, I didn't feel yesterday like I felt this morning, so that wasn't an issue. But as I was meditating and praying, the Lord spoke to me and said, my people are afraid. And it was a very strong voice of the Lord. And then he said, I want them to know that their faith is greater than their fear. Their faith is greater than their fear. You see, fear is its own kind of prison. And unfortunately, today the stockade is full the gates are locked, the bars are on the windows. There are many that are trapped in that particular domain. In the prison of fear, guards are unnecessary. They're unnecessary in the prison of fear because the prisoners of fear would not dare step outside of their little world of security. Fear consists of imaginary and invisible walls and barriers, but they may as well be made of concrete because it keeps so many people back from doing what God wants them to do. It holds so many people in defeat and will not release them into the glorious victory that God has ordained for them. I read not long ago that when elephants are small, they take that small little baby elephant, which is not so small compared to other animals, by the way, but they chain them to a concrete uh, post so that there's no way that they can break free. And these little elephants struggle to break free. They, they pull on that chain and pull on that chain to the point of exhaustion but eventually, those little elephants completely give up and realize that there's no way I can break this chain. Uh, and so they quit trying. And from that moment on, no matter how large, no matter how many thousands of pounds that that elephant will become, no matter how strong they will become, you can tie that elephant with a small rope 
to a small post, and that elephant will not move any further than the length of that rope. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 7 and 8, the Bible says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and abominable and murders and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It's always amazed me that, uh, that the word of God has linked fear and unbelief with such vile sins, such as murder and, and harm-mongering and sorcery and idolatry and liars. It has always uh, uh, seemed so unreasonable to me to link someone who has fear and unbelief with those that practice such corruption and such perversion. It doesn't seem fitting to me to even compare fear and unbelief with these sins, much less the eternal damnation that awaits them. But why is fear and unbelief judged so harshly? I suppose that there are uh, a number of reasons for that, but one of the reasons that God views fear and unbelief so strongly is because fear is contagious. Fear will spread. In fact, it will spread like the plague. All you have is, all you need is a little bit of fear in the room. And pretty soon, people who never thought of things will begin to say, well, maybe you're right about that. Uh, maybe I, I ought to be afraid also. Such was the case when Israel was camped on the other side of the Jordan River. They were poised to enter into the long-held promises of God where they would own the land and possess the land. They would live in houses they did not build. They would eat of vineyards they did not plant. They were ready to step into the promises of God but 10 men walked into their camp and said, I don't think we ought to go now. I don't think we ought to cross over now. We saw giants in the land and, and, and armies in the land, and because they were afraid, 10 men out of a, a, a nation of virtual millions, 10 men uh, spread fear throughout the entire congregation, and they did not cross over and the result of that decision proved to be very, very tragic. Why did God send a shepherd boy into the valley of Elah? Why did God call Jesse and say, send your son uh, to the valley of Elah with cheese and with bread for his brethren? The reason was because fear had paralyzed the entire army of Israel. Fear had paralyzed them. They could not move. They could not advance. And they stayed there until a little shepherd boy stepped out on an open field with a sling and a stone and brought a giant down to show them, you have no reason to be afraid, for our God is with us. Somebody said, oh, you uh, have fear as fear alone or something like that, but if that's all you've got, it will stop you in your tracks. 
It will stop the church in its tracks. Fear sent Elijah on a 40-day trek to Mount Horeb. Fear did that. Took him 40 days to get there and 40 days to get back. 80 days of revival wasted because Elijah was afraid. One of the strongest, most anointed, and most formidable prophets in the Bible was held at bay for 80 days because of fear. Not only is fear contagious, but fear gives birth to unbelief. That's why it was linked together, the fearful and the unbelieving. And so fear and unbelief are formidable companions. So you are either today projecting faith or you're projecting fear. Everybody you meet, everybody you speak with, when you go in a convenience store and buy a candy bar, you're projecting either faith or you're projecting fear. There's an aura around people today. You can sense their discomfort. You can sense that they're afraid. I'm going to tell you, there's got to be a group of people on the planet that fears nothing because Jesus Christ is the captain of their salvation. Your neighbors are afraid. Your family is afraid. Everybody is afraid. But not the church of the living God. I'm here to wake up some faith today. I'm here to come against the spirit of fear today. I'm here to challenge that spirit and get it out of our midst. Get it out of your mind. Get it out of your heart. You're either walking in faith or you're walking in fear. I come bearing glad tidings because the Lord has power to override fear. You know, what will help you is you just pray in the Holy Ghost every day. What does it say? Building up your faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. How many times have we felt uh, 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 fear and anxiety, but we came out of the prayer room dancing, believing, ready to, ready to go against uh, another giant, ready to slay another devil, ready to go again because praying in the Holy Ghost is of tremendous value, especially in the days in which we're living. John Canfield said everything you want is on the other side of fear. I thought about that, and I thought, well, I like to mend his statement and say that anything that is worthy of your pursuit will be on the other side of fear. I don't think that, that dinner this afternoon is on the other side of fear, but there's some things in God and some things in the spirit that can only be pursued, and they are on the other side of fear. And some of us are being held back because we're afraid. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid to fail. And we're going to hold on to that for a minute because that's one of our greatest fears. When I was in high school, I uh, was in intramural wrestling. I wasn't on the wrestling team. I wasn't that energetic. 
I mean, those guys train hard. And so my dad was a truck driver, didn't get to come to much, but he was able to come one afternoon to one of the intramural wrestling meets, and they put me on the mat with the best wrestler. And guess what? He beat me. <laughs> but you know what? This guy was wore out when the match was done because of one thing he didn't do. He never pinned me. Don't let the devil pin you. You keep fighting back. You keep, you stay in the battle. I want to turn our attention because we started on Peter. I promised somebody earlier I wasn't going to preach long today, and I, I always break those promises, but not today. Not today. Luke 22, 31 through 34, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. I wonder what, what you would do if the Lord spoke that to you in prayer. Because he didn't say some devil in the far-flung far fetches of the world is going to come upon you. He said, no, it's going to be Satan himself. It's going to try and sift you as we can force you through a little sifter until you're, until you're broken. But he said, I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Jesus spoke these things in case you do not know unto Peter just prior to leading the disciples from the upper room where they were partaking of the Passover meal and then going into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, where they would spend the rest of that night. Knowing that Satan is a very formidable adversary and that Peter was not equipped for such a confrontation, Jesus prayed for him. I want you to make note of that. You see, the Spirit maketh intercession for us. Jesus, the intercessor, prayed for Peter. It is important that you acknowledge what Jesus prayed for this disciple that was ready to go into battle, this disciple who was in possession of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, which is probably the reason why Satan picked him out of the group and challenged him as he did. First of all, Jesus did not pray that Peter would have courage. He did not pray that Peter would receive some special uh, kung fu anointing through which he would be able to karate chop his way through this battle with Satan himself. He did not pray that Peter would receive strength. He did not pray that Peter would uh, utilize some uh, spiritual weapons in order to defeat his adversary. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. The very thing that's under constant assault is his faith. The very thing that the world is constantly trying to strip from us is our faith. The very thing our family tries to tear down in us is our faith. I'm talking about unsaved family. The very thing that's always on the line is always up for grabs on the battlefield in every battle, every struggle, in every trial, and every tribulation. It's called 
faith. And Jesus prayed, Peter, that your faith will not fail. He knew that Peter was going to fail. He knew that Peter was not going to fare very well against uh, Satan in his battle one-on-one. -on -one. And so he prayed that Peter's faith would not fail even though Peter the man was going to fail. Peter, you're going to be a failure today. You're going to fail miserably today. You're going to fall on your face today. You're going to be humiliated today. You're going to be ashamed and embarrassed, but don't worry about it because I got you covered. I got your back. I prayed that the one thing you need to get you through would not fail, and that would be your faith. Woo! Praise God. You may think you need a lot of things today, but the Bible says faith cometh by hearing. What you need more than anything right now is a little bit of faith to get you through. As expected, Peter did not do very well. He was not prepared for his encounter with this fallen archangel. He was not equipped for what was coming. See, that's what we're afraid of. Come on, church. Come on, you know what's going on in the news. You know what's happening in America. Tell me it's, it's not disturbing. Peter didn't know what was coming, and neither do we. And so the devil came out of his corner swinging. He wasted no time in putting Peter on the ropes. He assaulted Peter, and his assault was swift and carefully orchestrated. Luke 22, I need to read the story, be a lot quicker than trying to tell it. Verse 55, when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together, that's where Jesus had been arrested and taken by the Sanhedrin. Peter sat down among them, but a certain maid beheld him. As he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said, this man was also with him. Now, listen to me now. We, we picture this, I think, and they're sitting around a fire, and this, this sweet little girl says, weren't you with him? This woman was demon-possessed. She was possessed with a spirit of anger. And there was a spirit of oppression in that entire room. Jesus was occupied, couldn't come to his rescue. And here's this demented and demon-possessed woman that says, uh, this man was with him also. He is one of them. He was with him also. Peter immediately responded. He denied him, the Bible says, saying, woman, I know him not. After a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also with him. Another demon-possessed mentor of this archangel said to him, Thou art also. Peter said, Man, I am not. In about the space of an hour when Peter began to relax a little bit, after another confidently affirmed saying of a truth, This fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter said, man, must have been a hippie. 
I know not what thou sayest. Some of you younger people have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> I know not what thou sayest. And immediately while he yet spake, the cock crew, crowed, crewed. And the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. I want you to understand something about Satan's assaults. Uh, the devil does not just randomly, casually, off the cuff, assault a child of God. This particular assault was very, very calculated. It was very strategic. It was planned very carefully just exactly how uh, this disciple of Jesus Christ would be assaulted. You understand there were three in that room that accused him of being one of Jesus' disciples. And the irony of this is that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. The devil knows what he's doing. He's been doing it for 6,000 years. This was very calculated, and the irony was not lost on Peter. He understood the power of three witnesses testifying against you. And, and, and to Peter, to deny Jesus Christ would have been unthinkable. The last thing he thought he would ever do, he did. In fact, he did it three times within the space of a little over an hour. He denied knowing Jesus three times. Three times. And now, all that is left is for God's retribution. Because the Bible said, Whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. The Bible says, If you see your brother overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, go to him in a spirit of meekness to restore him, considering thyself, lest thou also is tempted. Let me tell you something. None of us, None of us are above falling. None of us are above the most corrupt and vile and perverse sins that man could even imagine or think of. Don't think if that was me, I wouldn't have done that. If I was there, I wouldn't have denied him. If it was me in that room, I would have stood up for Jesus. Yeah, right. So Satan came into that room and made his death blow, and it was effective. There's no question that Peter was deeply wounded, but his wound was not fatal. Now, I know you could probably stand and tell us all how you've won every spiritual battle you've ever been in. Not me. And we ought to tell sometimes about how we were deeply wounded and broken. Had to come crawling back to Jesus and asking his forgiveness. Peter was deeply wounded, but he wasn't mortally wounded. His failure was not fatal, and neither is yours. And a lot of kinds of failure now, failing uh, in a lot of different ways and dimensions in life. I'm not just talking about failing in the things of God. I'm talking about failure in general. There's some people, they fail one time, and that's it. I'm not trying again. I'm done with that. 
I'm not going to accept any new challenges. I'm not going to accept this or accept that because I might fail at that. There's so many people, God's people, apostolic people, that are living under that fear of failure. They'll never experience that victory. They'll never experience that success. They'll never experience that breakthrough because they're letting fear hold them down and keep them back. The extent of Peter's injuries, as it turns out, would be determined by the thing that Jesus prayed for prior to his encounter. It would be determined by his faith. See, we, we, we place a lot of emphasis on the love of God and the mercy of God and the grace of God, but let me tell you, God puts a lot of emphasis on faith. I love you. I love you. I care about you. I want you to succeed. I want you to thrive. I want you to be powerful. I want you to be anointed. But you got to have faith. Unlike Judas, who went and hung himself, Peter went and wept bitterly under the heavy weight of remorse and godly sorrow. You need to understand something about your God. He has a fail-safe system. It is in place for us. And it's a system that consists of unfailing faith. Unfailing faith. Faith will never fail. I thought about that when I was preparing for today. Jesus said, if you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, that's a little bitty, teeny, weeny, tiny seed. You can speak to yonder mountain, command it to be removed and cast into the sea, and it will obey you. And yet on, on, on the Sea of Galilee, when they thought they were all going to drown, and said, Lord, don't you care for us? He said, how is it you have such little faith? The faith they had there was smaller. It had to be, right? It was smaller than the mustard seed. Praise God. Matthew 14, something happened that we have rehearsed many times. Jesus come to them walking on the water, and uh, they thought he was a spirit. He said, no, I'm Jesus. They said, well, Peter blurted out, if it's you, then bid me come. So he said, okay, come. Uh, at that moment, he's going, did I just say that? She climbs down out of the boat. He starts walking across the water to where Jesus is. All's well. Until it says in Matthew 14, 30, when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Whatever faith he had, this is very important, whatever faith he had in the moment was canceled out by his fear. I'm going to make a recommendation to you. You do what you want. You're your own person. Stop listening and watching all the stuff that's going on in politics, in the culture in America, because that fear will cancel your faith. The devil wants us to be afraid. Verse 31, immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand, caught him, and said to him, O thou of little faith, wherefore dost thou doubt? Could this have been 
Ponder this with me for a moment. Could this have been a trial run for when Peter would have to meet his adversary, Satan? Could this have been a trial run preparing Peter as he would face off against the devil? And I don't know if it was or not either. But if you fast forward to where Peter would have this encounter with Satan, whose intent was to sift him as wheat, Jesus knew exactly what to pray for because this time, Peter, your faith is not going to fail. This time, your faith will get you through. Peter failed, but his faith did not. You know what's going to get you to church this week when others will fail to attend because of failure? The dejection, the defeat of failure is faith. You know what will cause you to get back up when you're knocked down on the battlefield? When others stay down, they do not get back up. It's faith. It's faith. It's not that we are endowed with some superhuman strength. It's not because we are more persistent, more determined uh, than anybody else. It all hinges on faith. It's faith that will pick us up when we're not able to get up ourselves. It's faith that will lead us to a place where we can be restored. It's unfailing faith that will uh, be just enough light in the midst of our darkness so that we do not enter into despair. I know that failure is not supposed to be written into the script. If you read your Bible, failure is, is a part of the Word of God and those that experience God's grace, God's power, God's anointing. Failure was written into the Word of God and into their very lives. But one thing I know, I know that our faith is greater than our failure. I know that you feel as I do. You don't want to fail your family. You don't want to let them down. You don't want to fail God. You don't want to fail uh, your neighbors being a witness. You don't want to be a failure. You don't want to fail those that are depending on you and counting on you. Now, you may think that you're not that important to the kingdom of God, but you are. Every individual, see, we're part of a body. We're intricately woven together, and your success will affect my ability to succeed. Your failure will put an excess burden upon others around you because now they have to compensate for your failure. So none of us want to fail. We don't want to fail. But uh, a failure is not someone who fails. Anybody here ever fail? Under a million times? Just because you fail doesn't make you a failure. A failure is someone who quits. That's what a failure is. When Judas betrayed the Lord, talk about a moral failure, betrayal of the Son of God, he went out and hung himself. He went out and found a tree and hung himself. 
Some commentaries say he impaled himself, whichever the case is. When Peter failed, he went to a tree also. He went to the tree upon which Jesus was crucified. If you're going to go find a tree, go to Calvary. Let me bring this to a close. This could be the day that you make your way back from failure. Could be the very day when you recover yourself out of the snare of the devil. This could be the day when your story changes from one affair to one of redemption. I preached a message years ago about writing your story, and the next chapter is yet to be written, and the pen is in your hand. You can write the next chapter of your life. You can determine what the next chapter is going to say. Amen. If I was going to write the next chapter of my life, I would write good things into that chapter. I'd write victory into that chapter. So you have the power, the pen of a ready writer the Bible talks about. You have the power. I know things are going to come against you that that you have no control over, but there's a lot of things you do have control over. You have control over your spirit and your mind and your heart, your devotion, your worship, your faith in God. You have control over more than you think that you do. So this could be the day that, that God does some tremendous things in your life. When Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, died, uh, David sent an entourage. Believe it or not, I tried to put that word, wrote it down. I found out I couldn't, I didn't know how to spell entourage, all you Sunday school, all you school teachers. I didn't know how to spell entourage, and, and my word, Speller wouldn't even correct it for me. <laughs> Bill Gates doesn't even know how to spell the word entourage. And so David, being king, sent an entourage of his most faithful men to comfort uh, his son, Hanun. Hanun received them, and they were in his court, and he was convinced by his cohorts and the men that he relied upon, he trusted that David sent these men to search out the city. They're spying the city. All they're going to do, they're, they're going to come back with an army and destroy us and overthrow the city. So Hanun took David's servants, and he shaved off half of their beard, and he cut off their garments. This is the Bible now. I'm not cussing. Cut off their garments to their buttocks and shamed them. When David heard about this, he sent others quickly to meet them in the way, knowing that they were greatly ashamed at what had been done to them. And this, these men that met them escorted them to Jericho, where they would dwell until their beards had grown out, and then they would return home again. What I'm here to tell you is that God knows how to deliver you from the shame of failure. God knows how to escort you into a place and remove that shame from your life so that you can go again. You can stand strong and confident in him again. And what you need right now is unfailing faith. Worship team, would you join me on the platform?
It is difficult for us to fully and completely admire Samson for his accomplishments, for his incredible strength, his many victories over Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines. In light of his glaring defeat in the lap of Delilah, it's hard to balance the anointing of Samson with his weaknesses. Truly, he was a great man in one respect, and in other respects, he wasn't that great after all. Israel's mighty warrior, after Delilah has his hair removed, is a broken man. His eyes are gouged out. He is blind. He is now gaunt, and he is placed uh, in a mill where he is to grind wheat, push a heavy wheel in circles day after day after day. It's hard to get that image of Samson out of our minds because that was how he ended up. When 3,000 lords of the Philistines had gathered in a very large stadium, they summoned Samson. They brought him from his either his grinding wheel or his prison cell, and they led him into the auditorium where they would laugh at him. He could hear all of these people mocking, laughing. Where's your God now? Where's your strength now? Who do you think you are? See how you are now. Our gods are stronger than Jehovah. You're nothing. Just mock him and belittled him uh, and shamed him. There's no question about the fact that Samson had horribly failed God. I don't know. We have visitors here. We're so glad you're with us today, and I hope that you uh, will receive something incredible from God. Uh, I don't know that maybe you have not failed family or failed friends or failed God in some way, and that you have lived with that horrible shame for years, maybe disfigured in your mind and your spirit, convinced by the devil and by others that you're nothing now. You're worse than nothing. So Samson had failed God, and it was, a, it, was, it was public and for everyone to see. Maybe yours was private, and maybe it wasn't. And yet now he's standing between two pillars, a complete and abject failure. And he begins to pray. There's no indication that he prayed before this. I'm not saying he didn't, but it doesn't say that he did. He felt so ashamed. I really don't think he did. That's just me. He just took his punishment and he felt like he deserved every bit of it because of how, how foolish he was and how he flaunted God's anointing and God's blessing on his life, but now he's standing between two pillars and he hears the taunting and the voices, the screaming, the laughter, the yelling, and now he begins to pray. And he says, Oh Lord God, remember me. I pray thee and strengthen me, I pray thee. Only this once, O oh God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And he had the little lad that, that led him there 
stand in between these pillars. And at that time, Samson, how foolish do you think you are, Samson, to think that, that you could push these pillars down and collapse this auditorium? Oh, but I just prayed. I know who God is. I know who my Redeemer is. I know the God of Israel. I believe in the mighty God. And while I'm ashamed and, and while I'm nothing in his sight, I'm going to push on these pillars anyway. I'm going to give it one more try. I'm going to give it one more push in life and see what God will do with you. Stand with me right now. I think God is here in this room trying to get somebody. Come on. You can live for me if you'll just try one more time. You can make it if you'll just try one more time. Maybe it didn't work out before. Maybe you, you fell uh, somewhere along the way, but God's here to tell you, come on, push one more time, and I will reveal myself to you again. We serve a God that loves to restore people. Maybe there's a lost sheep here right now, the subtleness of his presence, the shepherd is in the room reaching for a lost sheep, trying to find them and bring them home again. My God, my God, my God. Samson, you don't deserve that. You know the thing that births praise and worship in a child of God is the reality? the ongoing reality that we don't deserve the mercy of God. When you stack up every failure, every sin, every evil thought, evil word we've ever said, every evil action, they will all stand there to testify we don't deserve it. Yeah, you don't deserve it. You know one of the things I'm grateful more of than anything with the Lord? His long-suffering. If he was not long-suffering, I'd have been gone a long time ago. But he's long-suffering, not willing that any would perish, and that includes you. And it includes me. Praise God. I don't know how far you are from God. I don't know what kind of destruction you may have left in a wake of behavior and words. If you learn something today, learn this. Be careful what you say because some things you cannot take back. I've had to eat my words a few times and they didn't taste very good. So I don't know how far you are, but I know that God wants to bring you back. So those pillars fell, 3,000 Philistines died in one action. God wants to restore you, your faith. When David sinned with Bathsheba, just close with this and then we'll open the altar in a moment. When he sinned with Bathsheba, he didn't just commit adultery. He had her husband killed 
The penalty under the Mosaic law for adultery was death. The penalty for murder was death. By all rights, David, when Nathan walked into the throne room, they should have drug him out of the throne, brought him out of the palace, and stoned him to death. But they didn't. Because David fell on his face before God, he didn't make excuses. He didn't blame Bathsheba for being on the roof naked. He didn't blame Uriah for being so stupid. He didn't figure things out. He fell on his face before God. And he cried out to God for mercy. And it's on his face before God that he was introduced to the unfailing faith of his Lord. Psalms 10, or Psalms 103, excuse me, verses 8 through 14. Hear these words before you come and pray. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our infirmities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. If there are angels in this room, they're here without sword, without shield. They're not warring angels, they're ministering spirits that God has sent here to help us. To escort us to a place of prayer where God can remove our shame. He can take away our guilt and condemnation so that we once again can lift our head in praise with tears streaming down our face and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And in the comfort of angels and in the presence of God, would you find a place to pray today? If not at this altar, would it be at your seat? May we come and seek after God. May we come and find that unfailing faith. May we bring defeat. May we bring our discouragement. May we bring our failures unto a place of prayer and let God comfort you and put his arms around you. Let his mercy cover you. Let his unfailing faith bring you to a place of restoration and a place of redemption. Even though you fail, there's one thing in God that will never fail. It's faith. 
faith.